Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I am your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura, promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise to his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, another word about our sponsors. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can go to CR101radio.com, CR101radio.com for more information on that. Also consider taking a look at GCS Apprenticeship Program on GCSApprenticeship.com, that's GCS apprenticeship.com to find a training program that is dedicated to the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be inspired and equipped to get involved with the tasks and honor of being a Christian teacher or even owning and operating their own Christian schools. Again, take a look at gcsapprenticeship.com for more information on that. Importantly, those sponsors help keep Christian Reconstruction Radio going. All right, so today we are going to finish up with the uh, topic we have talked about for the last two weeks, particularly Christian self-sufficiency. We're going to kind of put a little application into that as far as uh, what it is that we as Christians can do to um, look at the world around us and consider where we need to make some changes in our life. If you remember, some of the key texts that I have been honing in on is Proverbs 18.9, which says, Whosoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. And focusing on that quite a bit, that we do not, as Christians, want to be a brother to the destroyer. We want to be a brother to brothers who build and build the kingdom. It's interesting to notice that in verse 10 of Proverbs 18, it says the name of Yahweh or the Lord is a strong tower, that the righteous man runs into it and is safe. And so we're pretty much given the opposite there of the destruction is to be safe by running into the name of the Lord. And by running into the name of the Lord, it pretty much symbolizes and gives us the idea that we are fully clothed, that we're fully baptized into the name of of the Lord, into the name of Yahweh, and that we have full understanding that what it is that he will do um, in this world, we will be able to endure because we are in him, in fact. And so within that teaching, I really want to um, focus our attention on the ideas of sufficiency, particularly as we also brought out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul tells the Thessalonians to aspire to live quietly, to mind their own affairs, to work with their hands as they were instructed, so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent on no one. Um, And so that idea of being dependent on no one, I really wanted to pack into the concepts that we got out of Matthew chapter 6 when we were told to consider the Uh, lilies and consider the birds and consider them and how they act. They don't act as if uh, there is no future at all. They do not um, act as if providing for their young and their selves and their mates and their nest and their roots and their leaves and their absorption of nutrients um, is not important. We don't get that out of Jesus' consideration, but rather what we got out of it was 
the idea of how inside of a Christian who's who's been moved by the grace of God to seek after uh, the kingdom and its righteousness so that all else will be added to them, that they are to live in that seeking. And by living in that seeking of the kingdom, they would be able to also get everything that they would need, just like in a consideration of the lilies and a consideration of the birds in nature. And so, in fact, that is a form of self-sufficiency that would lead us to an idea of aspiring to live quietly, not to ask more of others than we need to, to mind our own affairs, um, especially within the church body, to uh, work with our hands, to actually be um, producers, to, to not be great wasters, to be beneficial, and that we would instruct um, others, as Paul instructed the Thessalonians, to do this. Also, that they would be seen to walk properly before those who are outside of this calling thus far, those who, who will see us, and even the heathen who will see us, who will never perhaps taste uh, that the Lord is good and that he is gracious, but that they will look at us and they will see a people, a wise and understanding people who has Yahweh the Lord as their God, and that would lead them to want to inquire so that our life, in fact, would be a life that would call others to repentance in Christ, it would call others to want to seek the gospel as we seek the gospel, and that it would be an environment, ultimately, of believers that were dependent on no one. They were not dependent on the outside and the outsiders, but that is sadly not what we have in society today. So, what we see in applying this to some of the um, current affairs or issues of the day, whatever you want to refer to it as, is really nonsense, um, is a huge lack in this understanding among the church as we see the church get spiritually, emotionally, mentally slaughtered right now and possibly in the future, in fact, become slaughtered saints and martyrs again if their act doesn't clean up because, you know, we suffer regardless of if we consider ourselves saints or we don't put ourselves in that other category of people who aren't standing up for their faith and trying to do what's right. Um, the blood of the saints will still be spilled as a repercussion of the sin of the whole. We know that. And so we have to be willing to interface with that reality and to see it for what it is and, and, and ask questions of how can we prepare for that? And what can we do now before it gets that bad to um, prepare our minds and our hearts for the potential of what's happening? And then maybe, if the Lord is, is merciful to us, how can we avert as much as possible of the destruction that's going to take place because people are not mentally sufficient to deal with the world that they live in. And they are not physically sufficient. They cannot provide for themselves in what's going on. Very much so in the world right now. Um, uh, just look at America, for instance. We're so dependent on the communist, socialist, Chinese government for producing so many goods that just 50, 60 years ago were created right here in the United States, either by the heathen or by Christians. But it was produced in the United States because the predominant worldview was a Christian worldview. And they had the ideals of 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 12 to depend on no one built into them. The idea was that they wanted to be um, independent. And so the amount of Christianity in the United States influenced the whole of the United States as to want to be a self-sufficient people. And that was produced by the grace of God that's revealed to that elect few that shined light bright enough and stood firm enough and staunch enough to hold back the, the torrents of wickedness that were laying at the door, okay? Not wanting to support communist nations that they knew would, if they had any power, destroy the Christian worldview and put down the uh, gospel of Christ because within it is the seeds of not rebellion in the negative sense, but resistance in the positive sense against the evil that comes from that socialist mentality that collects everyone up into a common whole and forces them to move for the quote-unquote good of the state. And that Christian worldview has been entirely opposed in the present day 
and we are reaping the um, whirlwind from those choices. We are are um, seeing the devastations coming upon this nation, and they will not end um, in the future. It's not going to end because we are not so sufficient on a physical level. And Christians at this time, and those who profess to be Christians, sadly are not being sufficient in their grace either. A full dependence on the grace of God, as we saw in the Apostle Paul, that that was all of what he was. And it was all like that mighty mustard seed that we see in the scriptures that turns into a kingdom, that it starts with that one small seed of grace that flourishes in the heart of one believer to stand like a mighty tree. And then when multiple believers stand on that one mustard seed of faith, they all stand together firm and cannot be moved, even if they are to be cut down and to be burned on the altar of persecution. And so I want to finish up with some thoughts on self-sufficiency, considering that and ending with what we see in the world today and where Christians can take these ideas to look in some applications of a Christian response to current events. And so, you know, I want to start with asking the question and direct it towards you, the listener. Are you self-sufficient in Christ? Are you self-sufficient in Christ? Do you consider yourself, your mentality, your heart, mind, and soul sufficient in the work of Jesus Christ and his cross? The start of, of being what we are to be is to be is to develop the mentality and goals of what we should be. Okay? The start of being what we are to be is to develop a mentality in our heart, our mind, our soul, our response, and to know what goals we are to be, what we're aiming for. And so very much this is part of our living faith. We could say it very simply as many people quote, without a vision, the people perish. And we'll see that much more in some of the scripture that we're going to consider today. And considering that without a vision, the people perish. And no matter where you are, it doesn't matter if you're young or you're old, you should have a plan for seeking and advancing the kingdom of God and its righteousness in the future and in the present. There should be a goal. There should be a plan that you have. What do you want to accomplish as a Christian seeking the kingdom first and its righteousness? And what do you hope to accomplish in the future? You may not accomplish it. That's not the point. The point is, what do you seek to accomplish? Let's hope primarily we all are seeking the kingdom, and that's what we want to accomplish, so we can do that. There's no doubt of that. We can seek its righteousness. But what do we hope to accomplish? What part of this um, world do we want to push on and push back on and further the... Um, the, the gospel into in repression of that wicked torrent that's coming. I'm not saying this in the sense of what you can do, but in the sense of what would you like to do? And I know we go, oh, we'd like to have it all. Well, let's, be, let's bring it down to our level. What is it that you in your lifetime can accomplish in your family, in yourself, in your extended family, in your neighborhood, in your church, in your society, what is it What is it that you would like to do where you want your life's investment to be uh, deposited in the future and then after your death? Everything we do in this life is an investment. We don't often think of it that way, but every single thing, every breath I make is an investment. Today, for instance, is a beautiful day where I'm at. And um, there's a lot of stuff I could get done outside. It's not too hot. It's a little breezy. It's not too cool. It's just beautiful weather right now. And my wife said to me, today you could go out and, and get this and that done. And I said, well, i got, I got to put the prod podcast together today. And she says to me, oh, well, that's too bad. And I said, no, it's not too bad. That's what I want to do. See, this is part of my investment. This is part of my life's work. Every breath coming out of my mouth, every stroke of the keyboard that the web uh, designers and, and, and those 
keeping these broadcasts going. Every every uh, message RJ Rushduni uh, is now having read and put online for you to listen to is part of a life investment. Okay, this is part of my life investment. And so everything we do is a life investment. It's not just money. We often think of money as the way that we invest. And it is, there is a, a, a investment there. There's no doubt about it. There's a type of investment that is made with a person with money and is held up for the future. Scripture says that money is a defense. We'll get into that a little bit. And the buying of things so that we have stuff is an investment too. But in fact, every effort we affect has the potential to be a positive investment, an investment be nothing more than that which we are vested in, like a vesture, like clothed in, as in the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And so how is it that we are investing ourselves by already being invested in the strong tower of the Lord in the world that we live in today? and allowing the sufficiency of the grace of God placed in us to press us onward and press us against that fight that is right now looming at the door, especially in the United States. And so, you know, likewise, there are negative investments. There's a negative effect is no less an investment, but to the contrary uh, of progression and production of a, of a building. For instance, you know, if you were uh, seeing a, a building that was wanting to be built and you do something negative to hinder that building from being built, from being produced, you have still made an investment in that direction to destroy that building. For instance, um, say if one intentionally wants to destroy a particular wall that protects a particular kingdom, they may do many things to see that wall fall. Okay, the first generation may do the research. Okay, they may do a research. How do you take down a big wall? That wall seems too big to, 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 to take down. You know, walls in the ancient world can be feet thick, 10 feet thick. Um, you have a stone wall that's, that's constructed that just couldn't come down and have many, many, many feet thick of walls. And so the first generation may do the research. The next generation may... Uh, secretly start the undermining of certain key stones that the prior generation learned to destroy. And in the future, the destruction of wall may be completed um, by every shovel full of dirt, every mental undertaking that was put into it. Before that, however, was just as effective as every shovel full of dirt that came out from under those key stones. That's the investment of a negative effect the destruction of a great wall. Either for one intention or the other, either to destroy or to rebuild, these are investments that are made. And right now, we have many people who see what's in front of them and respond to what's in front of them, though they may claim they are Christians, and maybe some of them are, but they are doing nothing to change the shovelfuls of dirt that are coming out from under the mighty wall of pressing back the wicked torrent that's coming upon us. And so we often forget that we are to be engaged in the seeking of the kingdom at these times. And that is not only bound up inside of ourselves, okay? It's not only what happens within us our personal relationship with, with God. We have to have that to have anything. We have to have that personal understanding that is a fact in our life. It is a fact. Our conversion is the evidence of a fact that God has reached into our life and given us a free gift of grace that we did not deserve, but we will work for in order to make things happen. We will seek the kingdom and its righteousness in expectation that all things we need will be added unto us, but it's not why we work. We just know we will be taken care of by our work. This is only the repercussion of our seeking, is what I'm trying to say. Because we are fully devoted to seeking. 
and not to all of these things. We're not devoted to all of these things, but rather we're devoted to the kingdom and its righteousness, and all these things are given to us. Where our heart is, there our treasure is also, in fact. And our heart is to be in the heavens where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty, and that is how we know his kingdom is forever, and we are invested, therefore, forever already. Okay? Our heart is there, our mind is there, and our soul is there, and what we do on this earth is a show and a vestment of knowing that we are in the name of the Lord as a strong tower. The righteous go into, and they are safe. That is how we essentially became not the brother of a great waster. And we cannot continue to be the brother of a great waster if we say we are brothers and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. And so oftentimes we do not consider that what sufficiency we have at any moment in time is an investment or is to be an investment positively, but it will be an investment regardless, even if that is helping aid the shovelfuls of dirt come out from under the wall that protects the freedom that Christians need to preach the gospel and the law of God. At any moment in time, it is an investment in the future. Preservation to either destroy the walls of Satan's kingdom or is it to build Yahweh, God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ? You have to make that choice, and you cannot believe that such things are constrained to the walls of your mind or of your soul or the walls of your own body, but that everything we do is an outreach into the world God made that he proclaimed to be good. You know, as a young man, there are some things that can be done. And some of those we'd listed in respecting of parents and how one can prepare. But as a young man, while we're preparing to be men, we can learn valuable skills as an investment that will not only provide for ourselves and for our family, but also that which you can teach others, whether they be family or not. You know, so oftentimes we forget that when learning from the ground up for the first time, you have what we call a learning curve. Okay, when a person has to learn something for the first time and they've never done it before, there's a learning curve. The teacher doesn't have the learning curve because he already went through that. Now he's passing it on to you to try to minimize that learning curve so that you can be more efficient with your time. You don't have to, quote unquote, reinvent the wheel, we call it. But to conquer and to systematize that curve in a way as to teach others is the goal, okay? especially your future children, or maybe even a brother in Christ that is in need of skills. Your skills that you have been given, that God gives you, that you can teach others to become a huge, can become a huge asset in advancing that person and to minimize the curve they would need to learn it, or maybe even to help them do something they may have never thought to do, but because you have the skills to teach them, and you already learned them as a young man, you can then offer them from the ground up to understand it better. And so those who you would teach won't have to learn from the ground up any longer because you have already done it. You can become the teacher, not to be the teacher, but to help the student. Okay, not for the prestige of being it. And so this is no different with whatever it is that we set our minds to do. For, for a young man to do right now, as he's young, you know, whether it's learning how to do simple uh, survival skills, life skills, and things like that, or if it's jobs, carpentry, and, and other hands-on skills that will help you uh, make it a living for your family. Uh, but most importantly, those survival skills and life skills as children at one time were a thing nearly every child in every culture knew in his environment before he was even a teenager. Now we send children to schools from the time they're little, you know, from the time they're six years old or so, they go and they're away from mom and dad so that those, those initial um, lessons can't be passed on to them 
so that they are not proficient in it. Things like planting, reaping, preserving food, slaughtering of animals, basic life skills needed to stay alive in a civilized manner, and perhaps skills needed to live in an uncivilized manner, such as general hunting and gathering skills, as well as the obvious mixture of agrarian life and those hunter and gathering skills together, as our ancestors all understood. The point is to have to learn these skills all over again and to reinvent the, the wheel and to face the, the curve, the bell curve of, of trying to uh, understand them is a hindrance of your time's investment. The investment that you will have to make into it will be longer, whereas if you have someone teaching you those skills and giving you pointers on how to become proficient at these things and to know what to do, you will have better use of your time as an investment that you can use. And so, if you have no future goal of passing these things on, in effect, it takes away from what is truly needed as a good investment of our time that could be spent in seeking the kingdom all the more in a more um, projected manner beyond those simple things. And so one of the things I want those who's listening and those who you share this understanding with, even if they don't hear my voice, just consider what that means whenever we um, don't know where things come from. Okay, Whenever we do not understand how the very bare essentials of surviving and living like the birds and the lilies uh, can can live, how can you truly build on a foundation that will further sufficiency when you yourself do not even know the basics of life? That's a hindrance. You can be the most intelligent person in the world. You can be an astrophysicist. You can be a computer genius. You can be whatever it is. If you do not know how to feed yourself in a time of crisis, or understand the basics of how these things work, you will be dependent on another person, and you will give what you have to live, unless you are some superhuman strong person. Okay? And God calls us to be sufficient of ourselves and to be dependent on no one as best as we can, especially outside the church. And so some of us in the faith have a gift, you know, there are, the, there are those of us who have a gift to preach, for instance, or to teach. And we see that as an advancement of our kingdom seeking. That's, that's how I view it, okay? Regardless of what I'm teaching or speaking, and even this podcast, like I had said prior, it is an investment of our kingdom seeking to pass on our desire to seek the kingdom and what we have learned to others, okay, through what we say. What may seem like the foolishness of preaching to some does not seem like the foolishness of preaching to others. But as I do right now, this is my investment into the future, in hopes that those who hear me will take what I'm saying seriously and start contemplating how they can be more self-sufficient in Christ, how they can be more self-sufficient as Christians to build upon what God has given them to advance the kingdom and His righteousness. So as I partner with CR. 101 Radio, for instance, those who run the network at every level are also devoted in devoting themselves to extraordinary amounts of time and investment for the same information sharing. It's obvious that when someone gives free listening on something they pay for, that they're doing it for the benefit of others and not for themselves. It's something to seriously consider. And so, you know, I don't think that too many people sit back in our day of free information these days. We just kind of don't sit back and, and consider that these investments are being made for those reasons. And we're hoping that you are good steward of those talents that are being committed to your trust to use them, to contemplate them, to think on them, to inculcate them into your life, to advance the kingdom of God and its righteousness through your life. Consider Solomon's thoughts on this in considering investment. 
Ecclesiastes 7, 11 and 12 says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to them that have it. And so what do we see in this investment? Here is what the aged man have to offer. That's, that's essentially the focus, because there's an inheritance being talked about here. So the aged man has ought to offer. One thing he is at some point certain to have ought to offer is wisdom, which he, beside money, calls a defense. Both are called a defense in these verses. And that defense is cited beside an inheritance, which has not its goals in the wise man, but in the wise man's children who will receive that inheritance. When we talk about biblically inheritance, you can't break the family structure of the idea, like I discussed a few uh, weeks back. You know, you can't just redefine who gets the inheritance, but rather, particularly we're speaking about a man's sons who gets his inheritance, and his daughter's next, and then after that, his extended family. And so, also, the implication is that the wise man will have wisdom to give with his inheritance, which biblically does, does not isolate monies to riches. Okay, we, When we talk biblically, we, we're not talking about riches just as money, gold, silver, or whatever, or paper money in our situation. We're not just talking about what buys things. Okay, So biblically, we do not isolate money to just riches, but it is more so includes land inheritance more than anything else. As in the time Solomon spoke this, land inheritance was genetically given to one father according to the right of one's birth to a particular father. Besides this, in the case of wisdom, we as wise men are to, with all of our efforts, to show our commandment keeping to our children. That's part of our wisdom. And this is particularly speaking of the second commandment I'm talking about. The second commandment keeping, in that we do keep the Lord as our object of worship and service before the eyes of our children as to deflect as best we can what the scripture says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, the visiting of the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. In all of our efforts, this wisdom that God has given us, this inheritance we want to give to our children of wisdom and of riches, beside what we give them physically, we want to give them the wisdom of God, and part of that should be us trying our very best to deflect the visiting of iniquity upon our children. That is that we are investing in what Exodus 26, 20 verse 6 says, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, which is seemingly the opposite of what is said of the third and fourth generation that get the iniquity. And it's with this wisdom as an inheritance all of our life's investments can be, Lord willing, the excellency of knowledge spoken of as a wisdom that gives life to them who have it. See, our actions, like the birds and the lilies of Matthew 6, are not just for our beautification. Okay, birds aren't just pretty. They aren't just mentioned to be pretty. The lilies aren't just pretty to be pretty and to be beautiful. But our actions, like the birds and the lilies, are not just for our beautification, but they are for our reproduction under God in hopes of a sufficient blessing for our posterity. That's definitely part of the scriptural narrative of what we're being given in our commandment keeping. It's not just for us to, to look good that we don't worship idols, but for our children to see it and to learn from it and us to pass it on to them as to deflect iniquity. And so, while I could go on, on uh, many things I think personally Christians should learn and pass on to their children, most particularly, I think it can be all summarized in this. Whatever you do in life, 
that is needed in the finite level of understanding, okay? In, in, in the most finite level, whatever you do that is needed, whatever you need to do to stay alive, you should invest in knowing how to do those things in some capacity. Anything to do with feeding yourself, clothing yourself, housing yourself, those primitive or primary duties of caring um, for your own self and others are things you should be invested in understanding and passing on to your children. Those skills should be somewhat known for the possibility of what the future may hold. It's funny, you know, in talking about this, you know, we're in such a mindset right now where people just don't even think that this stuff matters. We're never going to get there. We've got an abundance of everything. Things are always going to be good. Uh, there's always something you can fall back on. And for some reason in our Christian mentality, we've come to this conclusion that we don't really need to worry about this stuff. That being fruitful and multiplying will somehow just happen without providing for it. Well, i got news for you. Without proper nutrition, multiplicity decreases quite a bit. Fruitfulness decreases quite a bit. You don't believe me? Go and sow some kind of grain or, or, or some kind of, of a vegetable in the ground with no nutrition. It will not bear fruit very well. Okay? There is a nutrition that needs to happen to be fruitful and multiply. And so in the seeking of the kingdom, by that principle of Genesis one twenty six through twenty eight, we have a full understanding there are going to be things that we need to do to be fruitful and multiply, and we need to learn how to um, be sufficient in those things. It, it's, it's interesting to me when I, can, I was considering examples of how I could share that idea and, and look at our mentality in our modern day. Just consider how a hundred years ago what we would once have considered a blessing would in today's society more so be considered a curse. And, and that cursings and blessings are somewhat relative and dependent on the frame of time a person is born into. So, for instance, consider this. When our puritanical pilgrim forefathers came to America, the production of raw grains on small family farms in the 1600s was a blessing. Okay, Raw grains, wheat, barley, rye, oat, um, you know, bar, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's plenty of other grains. Those are pretty much the staples, barley and wheat being the staple, rye also in Indian corn or maize. Okay, raw grains were a blessing. Imagine what the response would be today when starvation starts to happen here in the future because of the way that we are living right now, before socialism comes in and tries to um, give us the alternative to starvation. Just imagine what the response would be today if I came by a starving man's house, a man who is hungry, and I dropped them off 100 pounds of raw wheat on their doorstep, absolutely free to bless them. Do you think they would feel like that was a blessing? I guarantee you in the 1600s and 1700s it would be a huge blessing. But today, they would be dumbfounded. Dumbfounded and perhaps thinking that I was taunting them, maybe, in their hunger. They'd, they'd expect some kind of pre-processed food, like a sandwich or something that's already got the, everything ground down and you know, has everything there waiting for them. But if that's what I had to give them and I gave it to them, I said, hey, this is the best I can do. Um, here you go, here's 100 pounds of raw wheat. They would think I was dropping them off a useless item. But with a little knowledge or wisdom, as our scripture talked about in Ecclesiastes, that's an immediate food source. You cannot throw a handful of grain into your mouth and chew it up with your teeth without breaking a tooth, most likely, unless you've got some serious stuff and you're going to take the time chewing on it. So it's not immediate nutrition. But if you know anything about how to parch grain, it wouldn't take a whole lot to turn that raw grain into nutrition. Just with one pan 
and heat underneath of it. Hot, a hot pan, you can take grain and pretty much do what you do with popcorn, and you have food. But if you don't know that, you have a worthless item sitting on your steps that I dropped off and cursed you with. With a little bit of knowledge, you may even be able to toss some of that grain out there and have a bird who doesn't have as much tro uh, trouble eating it come to get it, and then you could maybe catch the bird with a net or something. You could also, if you needed some other type of nutrition uh, other than the, the carbohydrates, you could soak it in water for a few days and sprout wheatgrass, a green that's very high in vitamins and minerals. And so that wheat would actually sprout and grow into a green that you could eat like a salad. If you just knew how to do it by rinsing it every day a couple times a day, you then had minerals and nutrients to get at that way. With the addition of uh, tossing the immature sprouts, so right after the sprouts just get started and get a tail on them, and then if you decided to toast them and then ferment them, in a couple weeks you could even have a celebratory beer of getting past your hungry, hunger if that was uh, one of the ways you would prefer to enjoy it. And with any hope in the future, you could take 10%, 15% of that 100 pounds, or 10 or 15 pounds of that 100 pounds, and plant it, that it might yield a full replacement of its 100 pounds if it's sown in good uh, field the following year. The point is this, just raw grains are a blessing. And so we hear in the scripture things like being blessed with corn and wine. Corn's referring to the grains of wheat and barley. Just raw grains are a blessing, but to our spoiled mentality, even this blessing could be perceived as a curse. And so what I'm going what am I going to do with this wheat um, these wheat berries or this wheat grain becomes our new response. They're too hard for me to eat. What am I going to do with this? But really, it's your lack of wisdom that's made it hard to eat, not the fact that it can't be eaten. And so, why wouldn't we be invested in understanding simple things like this? How do you live practically on nothing? How is it you can take the God-given earth you were given and learn to live on it and off of it? There are huge blessings in learning where all things come from. And there is a security in that wisdom in producing for God's kingdom to bless your posterity and your helpmate, your wife and children, as they build with you and your brethren when they're beside you. A people who do not know how to produce anything are a people who are easily controlled and enslaved. A people who do not understand how and what they enjoy is created, are a people that will give all that they have to keep what they enjoy. And worse, they will sell their own soul for what they need. And I'm being very literal and talking about enjoying and needing. You will sell your soul for what you need. Unless you are resolved and grounded that you will starve to death before you sell your soul out from under God. And that, of course, is going to speak to the root that we have in God's grace. And so, really, we are seeing a lot of this in society right now amidst what's being called the COVID epidemic or pandemic or whatever it is. People are slowly giving up ideals of liberty that they would have not have relinquished a year ago for the ability to act normal. People simply are like other creatures. If you know anything about any animals on the farms, cows, goats, sheep, whatever, chickens, they want a routine. They want a feeling of security in doing what they have already done, that which has allowed them to stay alive prior. They do not want to change that norm because they consistently um, know that it is secure for them. Either consciously or subconsciously, they know they have gotten results in the past, so why would they want to change? 
The chicken always goes to the coop at the same time to not be killed by the predator and to get its food. The cow comes to the gate to be milked at the time. Milking is always done if you keep a routine with the cow. They know when to go to the water when the water's cool and the shade is in the trees in certain places. People are no different. They are used to something they have done all their life. And this generation who does not know how to take care of itself, who does not know where its stuff comes from, that keeps it alive, that it needs, are going to want to keep their routine regardless of what happens. No different than you would catch a beast at the right time, knowing that it's going to always come to the gate at that time, is the best time you're going to have to catch it. It's easy to relinquish things mentally and emotionally. They are safeguards that we will release for physical results. That's just the truth of it. We will release emotional and mental things in order to have a physical result to fill our belly, to have flavors of things that we know in our mouth. That's what seems to be immediate and important or what is real to us. While giving up ideals, which we may even say will only do temporarily, I'm only going to act this way for a little bit, is so much easy because it does not affect your stomach and the way you feel physically, at least at first. But the whole goal of catching the creature in its routine is to butcher it later or to move it to another pasture or whatever it is that you're going to be doing with it. Okay? And for a people who are dependent on that, they will be caught. Very, very nearsighted. The wisdom of Solomon speaks on this matter in Ecclesiastes 6, 7 through 9. It says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind or vexation of the spirit. The appetite of a man is not limited to food, but it is our chief concern often in life that we are thinking about. The wandering appetite that has no wisdom in its sight, in its eyes, before its eyes, but only lives to be filled wheresoever it finds its place to feed, will always go where the food is before him and seen. His appetite is his seeing because he has no wisdom to see where he's going. But this, Solomon says, is empty. It's vain. And it is a stress upon the spirit, just like fighting the wind or beating the air. That, that's, of course, only if one can perceive it. If not, they just wander around not knowing what's happening. This is why Christian lifestyle has to encompass more than what day you go to church, more than who you worship with and how you pray or how you sing your hymns. A Christian life that supports self-sufficiency on an individual level, when individuals become coupled together, start to become a mighty wall against those who may seek to control the people of God by use of the physical world. When they go to depriving them of what they need. They can't do that to a self-sufficient people. But they will try to allure them into an ungodly compliance. And there is no good reason for us to believe that this is not the total goal of every unbeliever who has not experienced the grace and faith of Jesus Christ. Regardless of how nice a person is, regardless of how nice they may be, if they are not a soul that is driven by the grace of God through the faith in Jesus Christ unto the good works that God has ordained, they are then obedient to another ideal of morality. They are obedient to another ideal of morality. 
to another ideal of self-sufficiency or of sufficiency and another ideal of liberty than what the one who seeks after Christ and desires the liberty God has given him to exercise his conscience, to follow the word of God, would possibly have. They are on two completely different paths, and you cannot believe that those who do not have that faith will lead you in the proper direction because they will not. It is up to you as a faithful man or woman of Christ. When we have elected officials in political leadership that do not even endorse the word of God as God's revealed morality, even if we don't agree on what it says, but if they don't even believe that the word of God is God's revealed morality to man and society on the most basic level, you then have an official that will buckle to what his flesh desires of him to suffice him. And in the process, he will desire you to do the same as he does with him. Because he does not understand why you would not feel and do as he does, because he doesn't have faith that drives him. He is not sufficient in the grace of Christ. He has a fear of death. And you don't. This places you on two fundamentally different levels that cannot be reconciled. See, the Christian self-sufficiency is found in the faith of Jesus. All the elements of the world must melt away when that glorious gospel light is revealed to the soul of a man touched by it. But this is not so for a non-Christian, and we have to recognize that is what we see in the world today. For those who live after the flesh with no spiritual relationship to the sufficiency that is in Christ, all this in the world, especially those which are religious or moral, all that must melt away before the eminence of their life in the flesh. All the stuff that is in relationship to the spirit and the sufficiency of Christ that's in this world, everything religious and moral must melt away because they live in the flesh. They have no ideas of the life in the spirit. And that's where the real test of the faith occurs. The spiritual things such as faith and grace and morality are unknown to the unbeliever. To him in terms of absolutes, he has no clue. At some point, the man of flesh will persecute the man of the spirit for not living as he has been told by the flesh to live. See, his heart is not in heaven where his treasure is. The unbeliever's heart is not in heaven where his treasure is. He has nothing greater to look forward to. He has no reason to pass anything on to his posterity unless it is to destroy what it is he thinks is wrong. Christian is not so. That man is like the wind. That man is like chaff before the wind. In all this, we see a scene not much differently from what we read in the book of Job. Let's consider Job chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and including in all of this. We're told that Satan answered the Lord and said, Flesh for flesh, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Sadly, that is the case that tests the heart, mind, and soul of men. And it's right there. That's the thinking the Satan of the world wishes to impregnate into your mind as to go where he wants you to go. If you're a Christian, you know you can't. But if you aren't, that is where you will go. Flesh will save flesh. You will give up everything that you have to save your own life. And if, you stre if God stretches forth his hand and touches the bone and flesh of a man, man will turn around and curse God to his face. Who hasn't asked the, the question, God, why are you doing this to me when something isn't going their way? Or if something's happening just horribly. That's the seedbed, unsprouted, of what's being talked about here in Job. And this is the test. 
right now that's testing the heart, mind, and soul of men in the world that we're in. The Lord has allowed the temptation of threatening man's flesh and touching his bone with this pandemic, with the possibility of dying, so much so that he will curse God to his face in this trial. Next, when he touches his bone and his flesh, if the COVID-19 ever left bodies dead in the street, so much so that a man couldn't walk down the road without seeing death like it actually is in a true pandemic, what would man do? That would be the true trial. Wouldn't they curse God to, their, to his face? If they had no root in understanding the sovereignty of God and the grace of God on those who die in faith? The true trial will then be shown and men who proclaim Christ as king will then be considered as servants or if they are just unfaithful stewards. And that's the trial that comes down the pike. Every generation has its trial, and we are in the heart of a large trial, and the Lord is sifting as a sieve, according to the book of Amos, the hearts and minds of the people of America to find out where they are, and who they are, and what they're made of. And we are assured that not the least grain will fall to the earth, but all that the Lord has saved will be saved and will not be lost. The chaff, on the other hand, will be driven away. In Job's case, when we consider his situation, what do we see? Loss of his children. Horrible situation. Job lost all of his children by one act of God. He lost his cattle, his food sources. He lost uh, his buildings, all by supernatural happenings. When you look at it, and it happens all immediately, one after another, one after another, while one man stands there and says, "You, this has happened. The next comes in and says, this has happened. The next comes in on his heels and says, this has happened. It was a supernatural outreaching of God, and he knew it. It was nothing but the mighty hand of God that could be blamed for Job's loss, which even his blasphemous wife recognized and said, Job, curse God and die. She became the brother of that great waster in telling Job to curse God and die and to give up his integrity. She became the help meet for Satan's ideas. But yet the scripture tells us of Job's sufficiency of grace. In Job 1.22 it says, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And in Job 2.10 it says, In all this Job did not sin with his lips. And at the end, we know that Job was, whatever his error was, was put away and that God forgave him and that God blessed him with all the more. How much more should we then consider distancing ourselves from the wiles of the devil that are enacted by men in high places as we see it today? These men do not know the grace of God that is okay with with saying, shall we not receive good from God and evil? Aren't we going to have to receive both? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? They don't understand that concept as Job expressed. You know, I'd be a liar to say that the thoughts of last days being upon us and considering uh, that type of idea has not flooded into my mind. Especially where I hear Jesus say, you know, when he comes, will he not find faith upon the earth and things like that. You know, I, I, I see it and I constantly see the self-professed Christians turn into the way of apostasy go into ideas that are unchristian. I see Christians sacrificing their Christian principles on the altar of Gnosticism as they ignorantly blend um, all of these concepts together of, of trying to understand the world um, without regard of the fact that this is God's world and that we are to be stewards of the world and we are to tarry until he come, that we are to um, you know, stay here and plant and to build on his behalf. 
I'd be a liar to say that oh I don't I don't see all of this going on and and it doesn't cross my mind and thinking you know Lord will there be any faith left on the earth when you return you know and how are we going to get past the, these troubles and a large part of it brethren is we need to learn to be self-sufficient as the early church was self-sufficient we need to get back to the roots of our faith we need to get back to the things that are worth building upon and teaching our children and handing to our children. We need to get back to the faith once delivered to the saints. We have to get back to that point. And so this is going to be the end of self-sufficiency. I'm going to stop talking about this for a while. Well, not altogether uh, giving it up, of course. But um, we're going to move on to some other things and discuss some other some other issues, of course, with the way the world goes, like you just can't stop talking about uh, the way to interpret what we're seeing through a Christian worldview. And um, that's never going to leave us. But, you know, we're going to have to at some point stop and, and encourage the saints and focusing on something else. But uh, this is a huge part of, of what we need to do. This is a huge part of where our mentality is. You know, it's it's a driving force um in the church to be dependent on themselves and to learn what it is they need and what they don't need, what they can do without and what they uh, have to have, what are enjoyments and what are needs, what are necessities and what are just simple pleasures. Um, we need to know where that line is and we need to know what's worth sacrificing um, at what time in order to have a good judgment on what's coming at us because there's no doubt about it at the rate things are going Christian liberties are already being diminished they're already being stopped we don't know how much longer we'll even have the internet that's not going to be filtering us and, and, and listening to us and allowing us to talk the way that we're talking today but Christians need to live bold we need to be salt we need to be light in this world we need to not hide our light under a bushel we need to um, Preach the gospel, but our families have to look like what we see in First Thessalonians. For our families, our churches, our Christian um, communities have to look like First Thessalonians 4. That we are to aspire to live quietly. We are to mind our own affairs. We are to work with our hands as we have been instructed. That we may walk properly before the outsiders that we are dependent on no one. And so I'm going to leave it off right there, and I'll be seeing everybody in two weeks again, Lord willing. Help me not to waver from your